and we had God identifying his covenant people. I trust that you remember what we talked about. Abraham gets a new name. He goes from Abram, which is exalted father, to Abraham, the father of a multitude. And God says, you are the father of a multitude. There's a new covenant ceremony how God is going to identify particularly in a physical way his covenant children and then a new covenant child is coming and he of course gives a name for him Isaac the son uh, son of laughter and uh, all of this because of God's great love for us Uh, Juanita was referring to that this morning just God's consistent eternal commitment to us Come what may, no matter what, he loves us and he's committed to us, even with our our struggles. And so this is a commitment he still has. He had it with Abraham. We see it fleshed out in his life story, but he still has that commitment for his covenant children today. Those who, and it all ties together in Romans, have the same faith that Abraham had. It's not that, you know, we have to go through Abraham to get to God, but Abraham had faith in God, and we have faith in God, and that faith goes through Jesus Christ, and this is the beauty in it. We can take these stories from uh, the beginning of history, the beginning of our history, and we understand their application to us today, and it's it's a direct application, and we should be encouraged because of this, and so... Because of this faith relationship we have with God, we stop trying to make a name for ourselves. God has given us a name. We're saints. We're his, his children. And we don't try and justify ourselves. We don't try and, and search for a personal worth that's independent from God. We are all in with him. We're wrapped up in a relationship with him. And his plans are our plans. His purposes are are our purposes, and that is the beauty of the relationship that we have. We give up this lie that we're self-existent, that we're, we're, we, we fulfill our own destiny. No, it's God's destiny, and we get to join in with that. So because of Jesus Christ, of course, and our relationship with God through him. Saints separated and were saved. Those were the sort of things that describe, that identify who we are, that we studied last week. And so we understand we're in this relationship with an almighty God that is an eternal relationship. We call it a trans-dimensional. It's a relationship we have with him here and now, and then in the, in, in the kingdom to come, in heaven, in the future. It will be realized even more fully. But in the meantime... In the meantime, while we're here, how are we going to communicate with God? Uh, how is it that we know Him? Uh, you know, how close do we, do we feel um, to Him? Does He meet with us here? And you might say, okay, what, what are you talking about? Are you talking about... Am, am I encouraging you to have some sort of a, a tangible interaction with God? Am I in, 
encouraging you guys to say, oh, I saw God, or God spoke with me in an audible voice directly. And I guess I want to start out by saying and thinking about this a little bit, saying, no, I'm, I'm not. Now, there are those uh, in the world today who would say, well, why not? Why not? Why aren't you encouraging people to, to see God and to know God directly, to, to speak with Him? And uh, it's important we go through this as we get into chapter 18, because the first verse says, and the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. God comes to Abraham visibly, physical form. And you know, there are a lot of people who push for that today. They go, well, why not us? And there are a lot of people who say things like, oh yeah, I saw the Lord and I spoke with the Lord and, and he said to me and this sort of thing. Why not push for a more palpable manifestation of God? I want to first of all say it's not a bad thing to desire to know God better. But we have to think about the parameters of God's word, what God is thinking about, what God wants, how he wants to relate to us. And as I was thinking about preparation for this, uh, some things came to mind. You know, in the scriptures, we're never told to push to see God. In fact, the Lord says to his own disciples, when he leaves, before this period, this church period began, he said, it's better for you that I go. Because if I go, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He'll come, he'll guide you into all truth. This unseen Holy Spirit that dwells within you will guide you in your faith journey. Interesting. He doesn't say, but look for me, seek to see me. Try and have some sort of a, uh, a relationship through your senses. This relationship that the Lord Jesus Christ left with us through the Holy Spirit rests solidly on the pillars of the objective truth of his word and the Spirit's presence in our lives, his gifting, the fruit that he gives us, this new character that we have. And also, it rests on the disciples' enthusiastic obedience. And we know which is the uh, weak link there in the chain, isn't it? You know, sometimes the reason we're not sensing God as we ought, we're not feeling that he's as present in our life, has to do with our lagging, sagging obedience. <laughs> we're just not, we're not looking for him. We're not trying to walk with him. And of course, we feel that he's distant. And you know, we... I even was thinking uh, in Isaiah 55, there was a verse, a phrase that came to my mind, seek the Lord while he may be found. I just thought of that. Oh, there it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. That's verse 5 of Isaiah 55. Verse 6 says, walk in obedience. <laughs> it talks about walking in obedience. And that is how we, in faith, seek the Lord. We walk in obedience and we see him in his word and through his spirit's working and in the circumstances of life. Most often, 
though we fall short in this area of obedience. The second thing is we don't see this as normal for biblical times. Abraham having the Lord come to him, it's just not normal. We, we remember these moments. I mean, these things stand out to us. But if you think of the history of the Bible, the centuries that it spanned, there are only a few moments where God touches down and communicates in the way, in the way that he does here with Abraham. Even in the Old Testament times when they don't have the revelation of the Bible that we have, they worshiped God for the most part with the revelation they did have. It wasn't God coming by every, every so often and saying, hey, I'm, I'm still here, remember me. It was by faith that they were following God. It was that faith relationship. And you'd be hard-pressed to find an example of even these great men of God in the Old Testament pushing to see God. They're not standing around going, okay, God, prove it to me. Show me yourself. Now, I do remember when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. You think of it. He was up on this mountain, somehow communicating with God, talking with God. And he was still struggling in faith. And he says, God, show yourself to me. And what does God say? God says, no. Did my mic turn off? Am I still on? Okay. I just, all of a sudden, I, I didn't hear myself. And man, I like to hear myself. So <laughs> all of a sudden, whoops, sorry. Thank you. <laughs> so, so Moses says, God, show yourself to me. And God said, what? God said, no. He says, you will see my glory. I'll pass by. You'll see my glory, but, but you're not going to see me. Think of another case with Elijah. Elijah goes through that whole thing where we just think, man, he should just be all set. He was on Mount Carmel. God sent down fire. Shouldn't that be enough? But Elijah's going, God, I, I want more. He's still in this faith relationship with God. God isn't walking hand in hand with him. And he's searching for God. And he's going, where are you? And how does God come to him? A still small voice. Probably much less than he would have preferred. But in this life, even in the Old Testament, even during these times where, where we see God in particular as really close, it's still a relationship of faith. It's still trusting in God and, and living with Him at a distance, but believing in Him. The third thing I wanted to bring up was, uh, are we the ones to be in control of this relationship? Should we be making demands and setting parameters and saying, okay, God, uh, you know, I, I need to hear from you. You need to speak. To, you know, I want you to come. To, I want to see you. What does that make us? That makes us the controllers of this relationship when we start putting demands on God. And that's not anything that we see in the Bible. It's always God who's controlling the relationship. And thank goodness, 
Because as we go back to, he's the one who's saying, you know what? You guys messed up again. You guys fell short, but I will be faithful. I will hold this relationship together. And so we, we, we see in this life that there are people, there is a, a tangent out there, uh, people who would say, you know, we hear God. We see God. He speaks to us directly. And we see a lot of damage done by people who have this perspective. They make a lot of stuff up. They say, oh, God came to me. God told me. And you know the funny thing is, it seems like God's always telling them exactly what they want to hear. God's always telling them exactly what they want to have happen. But you know, when we go to the Scriptures, and we'll see that this morning, then when God comes, He says things that we, we would never have thought of. We would never believe. And He says things that we don't necessarily like. Because He is God. He's over all of this. He knows more, and it's, it's better. It's better He leads and these people who, yeah, think they are hearing from God and seeing God, they have a, a faith that is, is, we'll call it a pseudo-faith, a fake faith. And the moment things don't go their way, it, it just crumbles. They haven't a leg to stand on. They can't go back to the Word. They don't have this working relationship with the Spirit. They haven't been walking in obedience. And, and the moment... You know, the money's not coming in and things are going poorly. They think, God's left me. How could things be going wrong? I mean, because the God that I believe in is a God who wants everything that I want. And then things go wrong and, well, it crumbles. Now, I realize we've taken some time with this, but I think it's important to have a handle on, on how God prescribes our interaction with Him before we go to this passage. How He, the normal patterns of how He interacts with us so that we can look at this event and we can learn from very clear principles that are in this event. I don't want us to be imagining this as a prescription that we're to be sitting by the door of our tent in the heat of the day waiting for God to come walking along. So as we take Genesis one chapter at a time, chapter-sized bites, we look at this chapter 18 and I'll give you three sort of sections, one to eight. We have the appearance and the invitation in nine to 15, the birth announcement and in 16 to 21, there's judgment disclosed. And of course, you, you have the headings uh, that, that were passed out earlier. Truly, this is God's promised Christ. Communion with God in verses 1 to 8. And then 9 to 15, truly, this is God's promised child. And then 16 to 21, truly, this is God's promised chastisement. God here is speaking in this situation but let's read the first eight verses let's get a sense of of where this chapter where this story this event is going 
It says in verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. That's where Abraham was living at the time as he settled back in Canaan. And as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself down to the earth, And said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sails of of fine flour, which was like almost half a bushel. He says, Knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and he took a calf, tender and good. He gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree. Well, they ate. Interesting, the situation. We have here what is called a theophany, where God shows up on earth. But more specifically, we believe this should be called a Christophany, because God comes in physical form. And God has only one physical form. And that physical form is Jesus Christ. He was who was there with God in eternity past. He was the one who we read in John chapter 1 was active in creation. Jesus Christ was there. And so here in this Old Testament time, if God came in physical form, we say it was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Before he came to earth as a baby He came to the earth somehow in a physical form for a brief moment, for a visit. And we think, here it is. This is God, God in bodily form. And as it says in Colossians 1.15, that he is the image of the invisible God. That's who Jesus Christ is. Nothing less. He is the image, the visible image of the invisible God. In that verse, he's also called the firstborn of creation. Some people say, oh, he was, he was created first. No, he was never created, but he was, he's a part of this creation in his physical form. It's talking not about order, but about rank about importance. He's the prototype creation. He is the perfect creation. And we think about that, and there's an interesting passage in, I think it's Psalm 89, that talks about David. And amongst his brothers, it says he's the firstborn. And we look back, we remember that story, and we go, no, no, he was the lastborn. But we think about David and God's plan, We think about David in Israel's history. 
he was the most important of the brothers, wasn't he? And so ranking first. And so we see Jesus Christ, his special position as the Son of God, as the firstborn of creation. He's the one who comes to Abraham in this moment. In the same way that he came to Hagar before. Remember in the chapter previous, chapters previous, where he, he came to Hagar as she was running away from Sarah and Abram? And she, it says, a messenger of Jehovah came to her, and she ends up calling him God. Point blank, she calls him God. So we must assume that this is Christ as well, pre-incarnate. Different than Melchizedek. Some people say, oh, Melchizedek was pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. But I don't think we can say that because it never says, it never says anything about him being Lord. And also, this Melchizedek was involved in the history of time. And I don't think Jesus Christ uh, hid out in time at different points in time during history. Melchizedek was a real guy. He was the king of Salem. He came out to meet Abraham, then he went back. And so we have these specific instances where Christ comes and he is the physical, visible form and he meets with his people throughout Old Testament times to communicate something clearly to them. But the more important part of this whole meeting, this whole conversation, is Abraham's reaction to this supernatural revelation. And something we could remember is, here we've got Abraham. He is the prototype man of faith. He's the one who's lifted up as the example for us in Romans as, hey, this guy believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And we're encouraged to be people of faith as well. So we need to really look at what he does, how he responds, who he is in this situation and, and learn from him. I think it will do us well. Well, what happens? He saw them coming, and he jumps up, he runs to them, and he bows down to the earth. This is not just a, a little head nod. This isn't just a little greeting. He obviously has a recognition who they are, who this Lord is with these two angels. And he gives him the honor that is due. We might ask ourselves, how did he know? We have no information about Abraham actually seeing the Lord before this moment in time. How did he know that this was the Lord? Well, I was thinking of the Emmaus Road experience. Do you remember what happened? Jesus Christ, after the resurrection, the two disciples despondent walking on the road to Emmaus and he shows up alongside of them and as we read that passage in Luke chapter 24 we see at first their sight is veiled verse 16 of 24 they, they don't know who he is and they spend all this time talking to them and Jesus kept their sight veiled he was hidden from them they didn't know who he was but then we hit verse 31 remember that part where he goes to pray with them and all of a sudden they recognize him their sight is unveiled 
And so this is what I assume is happening here. Abraham looks up and the Lord gives him this ability to understand this is who it is standing before you. You can imagine him. This is like customary of the times. He's sitting there kind of dozing, heat of the day, siesta time, and, and all of a sudden, whoa, this is the Lord. Runs to him. He begins to worship him by faith, by faith he was able to recognize who he was. And by faith, Abraham was, we could say, unexpectedly expectant. He was ready. He snapped into action, and, and, and he, he's ready to give these visitors a royal reception. He recognizes who he is, and he responds with this, flurry of eastern hospitality that i think we can learn from and i'm not just talking about in the social sense here in north american society i'm talking about spiritually too i think this is a big lesson for us the big lesson here this idea of being hospitable not just to one another not just to people in the world but to the lord himself how hospitable are we? Well, look what he does here. He says, you know, wash, come on in, wash your feet here, sit in the shade. I'll get you a, a meager portion of bread. Let me give you just a little something. But once he gets in the tent, it's like the best flour. Get this bread going, honey. A and then he runs out back and he gets the fatted calf and he's you know, he's ready to put on a whole feast. It's incredible. We see him go through this. He sets, this, sets in motion this full-fledged banquet. And this communicates what? The honor that he wants to give to the Lord. That's what he's communicating. The worth of this visitor who has come to him. You've probably heard the word worship. Sometimes they talk about it as worth-ship. That's what we're doing when we, when we worship. Uh, we're not just saying things or singing things, but we are showing God the honor that is due him. And we definitely see this in the way Abraham responds to the Lord coming here. He wants to give him all the honor. And he pulls out all the stops. The question for us, the question for us is this. Would we recognize or do we recognize when the Lord shows up for us? When he communicates more clearly his presence, maybe through the word, through what the Spirit's doing in, his in our lives, or even through circumstances, do we recognize it? When we sense the Lord is here, is close to us, do we communicate to him? 
that we want him to stay? Do we give him the sort of honor that we see Abraham giving him? As he comes and as he prepares everything so well. And it says, there Abraham stood by while these guys ate. I mean, it was like he was the butler there with the towel over his arm. Standing there, if, if there's anything more they want. Is that how we would describe the relationship that we have with God? We want him to come to us. We want to be with him. Not that we manipulate God. Not that we can manipulate God. But as I look at my relationship with God, do I communicate this kind of value to Him? Do I want Him to come near? Do I want to be in His presence? And do I show that by standing by, spending time in His presence? I'm challenged by that. I mean, Abraham's here. He, he, he's preparing a banquet. And I think so often, my relationship with God could be typified more as fast food. God comes by the, the, the drive through window. I'll pop it open for a minute. What do you want? And close it again and... Yeah, just that routine. Off he goes. Off I go. Or do I spend time in God's presence? Do I go to his word? And I'm not saying that we have to be, you know, just academic people. So concerned about. But do we go to the word looking for God in his word? I found over my lifetime... I did not begin as a very academic person, and I'm not sure how far I've gotten really with that whole academic thing. But you know what God does? God develops areas of our lives that are weaknesses, and sometimes that is where we see the Spirit at work more than the other areas that are our strengths. Because we're left scratching our head going, you know I went through school and I, I didn't do very well in school, but, and I, I didn't really like reading and I didn't like sitting around studying. But wow, God has given me a hunger for his word. And God does that. But we have to be willing to eat. <laughs> you know, we have to be willing to develop a taste for it. We have to be willing to, to realize it's not just a matter of, oh, I'm going to go to the books. Oh, I'm going to the Lord. I'm going to spend some time with the Lord. I'm going to look for the Lord in this book. Because he's there. It's his word. I'm going to spend time in prayer. And not just sort of rhyming off the things I want, but giving him honor, giving him worship, spending time with him. And listening. Because God does direct our thoughts. God does communicate to us. God does bring things to our mind. God does challenge us and convict us in different areas. And are we there standing by at the ready going, okay, God, lead me. And, and when he says, 
you know, what about that person? Or what about this thing? And what about that issue in your life? And, and do we hop right to it and say, okay, God, this relationship of faith is based on his word, on his spirit, and our obedience, enthusiastic obedience. And this is all we see with Abraham. I mean, the picture that we have of God and our relationship is really clearly communicated in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. The Lord's talking about the different churches in the church of Laodicea. This is how he describes the scene. He says, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. This isn't talking about salvation. He's knocking the door of a church. And we know as we go through this, different of these churches have different strengths, different weaknesses. Some of them are doing better, some of them are doing worse. But here, the church of Laodicea, you say, it's the church, the body of Christ, but <laughs> he's not there. He's not allowed in. And we get this picture uh, of God looking for hospitality. God looking to come in and spend time with his people. He's knocking. It's not we manipulate God. This is the posture that God has with us. This is his attitude. I want to spend time with my children. I want to be with you. And I'm challenged. How much do I want to be with God? How important is he to me? How valuable is that time that I spend with him? How valuable is he to me? He's knocking. I also remembered a passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, where it, it talks about some entertaining angels or messengers of God without knowing it. And I realize we may, may not recognize these moments, especially when God is showing up in our lives. We may not. But you know what? It doesn't matter. We should be at the ready. And if an opportunity comes to serve the Lord in some way, even though it's, it's not the Lord standing there before me, maybe it's somebody else. Then we go to Matthew 25. Remember that? The Lord dividing the sheep and the goats, and he's saying to those people, as much as you have, have, have fed the hungry, as much as you have visited the people in prison, you've done it to me. We understand that our fellowship with God, our honoring God, is tied up in our fellowship with other people, in our, in our honoring of other people, in our showing of hospitality to other people. We're not just talking about inviting people in for meals, but we're talking about looking at other people in their situations and going, they have value. I want to serve them. I want to serve God 
through serving them. I will have communion with the Lord by having communion with these people. It's all bound up together, and we remember, you know, the, the greatest command. Back in Matthew, again, 22, where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, honoring Him, showing Him value, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our society in particular seems to really lack a sense of the presence and the power of the Lord, especially in these days. And I wonder, is there a correlation because of our lack of a worshipful welcome for the Lord, bringing Him into the middle of our day? Allowing Him to just disrupt, to show up in our day, and instead of, you know, getting the things done that we had planned on getting done, He brings along another opportunity. His Spirit pokes us and says, what about this, or what about that? And we're sensitive to Him. We're willing to change course and say, Okay, Lord, I'm going to do this thing. And I'm not sure, maybe even that it's from you, but you've brought it to my attention, and I'm not sure of the value of what I'm going to do. I'm not sure that it's going to change the world, but I'm going to listen. I'm going to obey. I'm going to follow. Are we, are we people who will do that, that sort of thing? Are we in that kind of an intimate relationship with God where, you know, it's like, God, we're willing. Whatever, whatever you bring my way, I'll do it. I'll follow, I'll obey. And you know, God is great at coaching us along. He doesn't say, you know, walk out of your house, lock the door, and never go back and go off here. You know, God brings us along. He gives us small things here and there. He, he invites us to be involved in serving Him, in honoring Him, in worshiping Him through serving others or through doing this little thing here or that little thing there. And, and our faith grows. Our relationship with Him goes, grows. We know what it is that He wants us to do based on the fact that we are in relationship with him. The man I worked with in Peru, he was an older man when I, I got down there, so I mean just had walked with God, was a very loving man, uh, you know, had done, done a lot for the Lord, you would say, quantitatively. But one of the things and one of the first times we were out traveling together, he, he said to me, it kind of stuck in my mind, he says, the will of God is like a romance. Knowing the will of God is like a romance. And so often we want to crack the book open and we want God to say, do this 
or do that. Well, what did he mean? The will of God. Knowing the will of God is, is a romance or is like a romance. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. Imagine if our relationships here in this world were, were just sort of like, you know, give me the information I know and let's go on. How would your marriage be working out? If it was like, just tell me what I need to know and, and I'm off. It's a relationship. It's a romance. There's back and forth. It grows. You spend time together. You know the person. You honor the person. That's how it works with the Lord. And that's what we see with Abraham. He didn't have the book that we have, the complete scriptures. He didn't have the history before that we have. But he had the same, the same faith. And he was walking in that faith. He knew who God was. He had that enthusiastic obedience that we, that you, that I need to have more of. Where we're willing to say, okay, God, you know, give me something. Just continue to direct me and, and spend time with God and know Him and know His Word and allow Him to shape our lives so that we're ready to listen. Because when God is speaking to us, when we're in relationship with Him, we're obviously going to run across things that are too wonderful for us to believe. And too terrible for us to want. And that's what we see in the Lord's communication with Abraham. We go into this next part here. It says, they said to him, to Abraham, they, I don't know, the, the angels must have participated. We don't get the exact dialogue or, or, or conversation that was going on. But they said, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I'll surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham were, and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And the way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year. Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, you did laugh. Now, I could go into, uh, you know, all this, you know, how women don't have faith that men have, and I'm joking. What was the difference between her and Abraham? Abraham had already been through this several times where he didn't believe. He'd already laughed. In relationship with God, God continued to challenge his faith and build his faith, and he was at the point where, I don't know if he really had a strong confidence in this, but he knew at least not to laugh. 
But Sarah, she's hearing this and going, it's not rationally possible. Rationally, it is not possible. And what was God doing here? God wanted them to know. God wanted us to know that this was his child. It was his child. In a sense, it was a supernatural child. It wasn't anything that a man and a woman could do on their own. That Abraham and Sarah could produce. And this was part of the reason that God kept leaving it and leaving it and leaving it so that when this couple had the child, because how quick it is for us to switch back, you know, we, Lord, give us a child. We want a child. And then the child comes along and we just go, oh, we got a child. We got the child. Instead of saying, no, thank you, God, for what you have given to us. And God wanted it to be unmistakable. Sort of like with Samson, with Samuel, with John the Baptist, all those other circumstances where they couldn't have kids. And then when the child came, they knew, oh, this is from God. There's a special plan here. And ultimately, in Jesus Christ, <laughs> the child came supernaturally. It was God who is involved. And in the fullness of time, it says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God brought forth the child born of a woman to do a special work. And that's what God was doing here. God communicated his plan with them. Let them know, this is what I'm doing. Wow, what a message. Have you spent enough time with God? Have we spent enough time with God that we're completely aware that this is what God's doing? It's not us. It's not just circumstances. God is working here faith grows our confidence in him then we go on to the next part this is the the difficult news verse 16 then the men set out from there and they looked down towards sodom and abraham went with them and set to set them on their way we see this continued hospitality of abraham he doesn't just run out to see them stand by them while he gives them a banquet but as they leave he goes with them. He's following, following along. And the Lord said, verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing, about to do? You think of that. If Abraham had just let them go at the door, hey, see you guys later. If he hadn't followed them a certain way, the Lord wouldn't have revealed, I speculate, this other information. But he looks at Abraham, Abraham coming along. This is Abraham. He's my, my chosen servant. He's somebody who is responsible. I want him to understand completely what's going on. I don't want him just looking out on the horizon going, whoops, there goes Sodom. I want him to know what I am doing in this situation. 
this me work. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, after all this consideration of who Abraham was and who he would become and his importance in this whole plan, the Lord says to him, this is what I'm doing, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. Even in what the Lord is saying here, his character is seen. His default of mercy and patience. There's no rush to judgment with God. Even with Sodom and Gomorrah, even with what was going on there, and we'll find out more about that later, it's not a matter of, hey, I want to torch these people. I want to, you know, not that attitude of, of remember James and John when the people rejected Jesus? Say, Lord, give us a chance. Let us call down fire on this place. They've rejected you. They've been insolent to their, their creator as, as you came and you offered them help and hope and salvation. Let's torch them. <laughs> Christ said, no, no. That's not the plan. That's not me. That's not who we are. We're people who understand that we deserve the judgment of God ourselves. We're not ready to point the finger in a hurry and, and rush to judgment. And we get this idea, it says the Lord's saying, you know, the Lord knows everything, but in human terms, he talks with Abraham, says, I'm going to check things out. See if they're as bad, as bad as I'm hearing. So there's been a great cry for justice. And I think back to when Cain killed Abraham and God said, I think it was Genesis 4, says, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. You know, so often we think of God uh, as being a judgmental God and, and we think, well, look at those people. They're just poor sinners too. And we forget about the victims of their sin. We forget about those who have been abused, have been tortured, who've had faced injustice. Run them down. <laughs> Henry's okay. <laughs> we, we forget the people who have suffered because of the sins of others. That is why there's judgment. It's not because sinners can't find grace in the eyes of the Lord, but God says, my, my, my go-to is mercy. We read about it in Exodus 34, I think it's 34, 6, where he talks about, hey, I'm a God of mercy, I'm a God of love, 
I'm faithful, I'm forgiving, but, but, I'm a just God. And people can't think that I will put up with sin. The truth is, justice needs to be done. And God says the truth is, justice will be done. And this is what we see here. Him communicating that. Most of the time, you know, when we want justice, it's because we've been hurt personally. Somebody did something I didn't like, they better pay. Whereas the Lord says, you know what? A cry has come out to, for justice. It's not for him. He s- communicates his concern for those who are suffering, and he communicates a concern for truth. That's what justice is all about. And so he will work out that justice in this world he will protect the truth and those who are offended you know I think of how we talk about God sometimes and I I think about how we say things like well when I get to heaven first thing I'm going to ask God And maybe he's going to say, if anybody ever did say that, which I don't think we will, why didn't you ask me that when you were here on the earth? Why didn't you spend time with me there? Why didn't you show an openness and a hospitality with me while you walked on this earth? I was available. I was at the door. I was knocking. I had the time. And we see here the sort of a person that that God comes to. We see Abraham, the man of faith. We saw his willingness, his struggle, but his willingness to walk in obedience with God. His readiness when God came And God revealed himself. God says, I'm here. He he was ready. He jumps up and and this attitude of, of openness and of just wanting to honor and worship the Lord. That's what we do. That's what we're doing. That's why we come here. It's not just to, you know, be in the same place and keep everybody moving in the right direction or or to play church. The reason we come together is to worship God, to honor God by faith. Do we know everything about him? Do we understand him completely? No. But we do know he's a loving God. We do know the salvation that he's offered to this world through Jesus Christ. We do know him through Christ. And the salvation of the cross. And for all the uncertainties that come, we just keep coming back to the word and we walk in obedience. And the more we do this, the more our faith grows. The more this faith relationship grows. 
the more God continues to reveal to us about how we're to live, about the wonder of his plans, and about the difficult things too, the judgment that will come, and the injustice in the world. God, help us. Help us to accept your offer. You desire to come to us. You desire to live with us, to walk with us, to live in us. Help us to have this enthusiasm about your coming to us. Help us to worship you, to show your worth, your value to us. To grow in our understanding of your worth and value as we spend time with you, as we immerse ourselves in your word, this objective truth, as we walk in the spirit, as we through obedience understand more and more of who you are to us who you are in us, who you are through us. Lord, we want to know you. We want to be transformed by you, conformed to your image. To be living lives like Christ in this world. Yes, to to serve other people, to testify, to witness of your love and grace to this world. But first of all, just to know you more. Help us, Lord. Help us to take advantage of this offer that you have given to us to walk with you in a life of faith.